Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, folks. Today's episode is with a three-peat guest, I believe. Her name is Dr. Suzanne Turner, and today's topic is you do not have a Prozac deficiency. Dr. Turner is amazing. She's a wealth of information as always, and we cover a lot of different topics. So make sure that you remember, however, that everything that we discuss here is for information purposes only. If there's anything here that really resonates with you and you think you might want to try, then make sure that you connect with your doctor, medical provider, make sure that it is the right thing for you before you jump on any kind of a new protocol, supplement, or what have you. If you're looking to connect with me, you can find me at natnidham.com or on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group. I appreciate you guys, and that's why I'm keeping these intros short. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Suzanne Turner. It is so great to see you again. It's great to see you, Natalie. Thanks so much. Oh my God, I've been looking forward to this forever. Uh, So Dr. Turner, if you guys don't know, has been on the podcast before. She's one of those docs I just kind of can't get enough of because she's got this incredible breadth of knowledge, not to mention an unbelievable approach. And she knows about peptides and all the things. So I don't think we'll ever run out of things to talk about. But when we were talking about what would we talk about on this episode, you blurted out this topic. And I was like, yes, that's perfect, (laughs) especially these days. So I don't, I mean, I've probably said that I, I will have talked about the topic in the intro, but you know, you don't have a Prozac deficiency. Sounds like it should be a book, to be honest, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially coming from a doctor. So that's a great idea, by the way. I might steal that. <laughs> I think you should. I, you're not stealing it. I think it's I think it's a thing. I think that would be really interesting. So why don't we talk a little bit about why this this came up for you? Really? Sure. Because, because, you know, this kind of popped in. I don't know if it popped into your head or it's something you've been thinking about for a while, but what of all the things we could have talked about, why this? Well, I, I have one of the things that I'm passionate about is um, changing the way that providers practice medicine and changing the way that patients perceive the practice of medicine. If you go into your doctor's office and you tell them that you have depression, um, you're likely to get an antidepressant medication. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that misses the mark. I understand why that has to happen, especially in the United States um, medical system, the way things are run. But there are providers out there who actually will figure, will help you to figure out what's happening and the reason why you have this. And no one has a Prozac deficiency. Now, again, I'm not telling you to don't take your Prozac or stop it today or whatever your similar medication is. That's not what my intention is. But it's to realize that there may be reasons why you have this problem and the symptoms that you're experiencing that get called depression that have nothing to do with the Prozac deficiency. So those are things that can be really helpful. Prozac or other medications like it can be really helpful in the short term. And and Natalie, you mentioned about the the similarity between a PPI like um, uh, Nexium or whatever in, in using that to treat someone's acute intestinal symptoms that can certainly be helpful, but this is not the long-term solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. This is a, a complex uh, and requires a doctor who will take the time to tease out all the things and not a, just a doctor, maybe potentially a team of providers, including health coaches, nutritionists, et cetera, who can give a, um, a breadth of information to figure out why this is happening to you as an individual patient. So personalizing your particular care, I think is really important. And I have seen part of the reason why this comes to me is because I see patients after patients after patients who come to me on a barrage of medications when the problem is not those medications. If we had just addressed their hormones to begin with, if we had just addressed, and I don't just mean uh, um, gonadal hormones, I also mean their thyroid, their cortisol, um, yeah. so many others. If we had just addressed all of these things, 
or underlying infections to begin with, this person wouldn't be in the position where they are with 10 medications. And now you're adding the 11th one because the 10th one is causing the side effect. Yeah. Uh, you also run into tachyphylaxis with a lot of these medications. They give a lot of side effects, particularly sexual side effects. And we're talking about often, this is in a 20 or 25 year old person who gets started on these medications and then continues them and they show up in my office in their 40s saying, why do I still not feel well? Yeah, I'm, I actually find that I'm seeing more and more people in their 20s. I mean, I was working as a, as a nutritionist and health coach in a CrossFit gym a, mm. a number of years ago. And at the time, I was floored that almost every person I was working with in that place, and these were people in their 20s and maybe their 30s, almost all of them were on some kind of an anxiety or antidepressive medication. And it, it was, it really took me aback um, mm -hmm. because um, it, it just seems that it, it just seems like this, this, it, it didn't seem right. And that was before 2021 happened and 2020 happened. So, mm -hmm. so, so let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned a few of them right then, but let's talk a little bit about what are some of the things that could be driving depression to the point where someone just can't, you know, they just can't pick their socks up. They can't get themselves off the floor and they finally, you know, because it takes a while for people don't just wake up sad one day and go to the doctor and say, I'm depressed. Like by the time they go to the doctor to say that they're suffering from that, they're depressed. They've been dealing with this for, they've been struggling for quite a while. So, Jesus. right. So, I mean, obviously it could be life circumstances. There could be a reason why, you're feeling depressed. And certainly I think maybe it's in those cases where it might be helpful to use an antidepressant to, while the person is undergoing some kind of therapy or coaching to kind of kick, help them to kick out as it were as a, as a temporary strategy. But there's also all the physiological reasons why they could be depressed. And maybe we could talk about some of those because they're so far ranging, right? From, from hormonal imbalances to gut microbiome, to insomnia, to like whatever the case may be. So why don't we, you tell us a little bit about what you've seen in your practice. Right. So if you look at the cellular level, um, the things that, that we think of that cause depression, this is a big issue. If you're talking about research related to depression, uh, the problem is we're trying to figure out exactly how do we create a model, an, a rat or mouse model that looks like and is the same way as depression so that we can actually treat depression and we can do studies on, on things that might treat your depression. So it becomes a real problem because we sort of have an idea of what might be some of the causes, um, inflammation, neurotransmitter imbalance, um, uh, uh, any of the autoimmune things, uh, creating the cytokine storms that we've talked about. If you've probably heard people have talked about in um, dealing with, with the recent virus that we've had, the pandemic we've been dealing with. And so um, a, a lot of those things can happen to the brain. So traumatic brain injury can affect those because that can be an original trigger. And then you follow that with environmental exposures or estrogen deficiency or um, uh, um, toxic, environmental um, um, toxins, things like pesticides and herbicides. Um, if you have a, a thyroid disorder for whatever reason, if you have an infections that are persistent, uh, if you have a genetic mutation, there's lots of genetics that can contribute mm -hmm to that being the case, especially things like a COMT um, uh, mutation that's going to affect your neurotransmitter balance. All of those things can be ways we we treat or we we um, uh, create the scenario of or the symptom, sim symptom um, spectrum of depression. And so when we're talking about creating a model that's useful in a rat, for example, for how do we do this, the, one of the original studies was done in this learned helplessness behavior where right. they just shock the rat over and over and over again until it just lays there and stops oh, trying to. It's terrible, I know. Um, but we're trying to figure out how do we treat, how do we figure out a model that works? Well, if that's not actually the reason that the patient has the depression in the first place, then why would we think that the treatment that works for that would work for this patient? Because oh God, yeah. that's not the, that's not the original problem. And so 
that certainly is the case for lots of people. And there are things that happen, childhood traumas that are, mm-hmm. that are debilitating and really destroy your um, uh, hippocampal function so that you just don't have the ability to, to it's, it, it goes into that adrenal fatigue type thing where they're just not producing ACTH. They don't have the ability. They're, they're Addisonian. That's certainly a possible, a possible way, but it's not necessarily the only way that we get this. So your microbiome has a big play Mm -hmm. in this because it's the biggest source of serotonin in your body. Uh, The way that your microbiome handles the food that you eat, like tryptophan, yeah, affects the way that your so your microbiome will then begin to create indoles. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, based on what your microbiome is doing. We know that even three days of antibiotics can affect your microbiome. We know oh, yeah. that three minutes after a traumatic brain injury, your microbiome is affected. So lots of things will affect your microbiome and that will begin to affect your brain. So the indoles that are created by the, uh, by the um, metabolism of tryptophan in your intestines by your microbiome will then go to the brain and bind to aryl hydrocarbon receptors, which then creates this inflammatory storm that goes on in the brain. And inflammation is, is expressed in people often as depression. Wow. So, um, so there's a whole cascade of things that can go on and it's just because your gut bugs are, are, are misaligned. And that can be from things like having a colonoscopy prep. Um, it can I've be from wondered about that. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I've always, I remember having a client way back who was going in for colonoscopy and it's, it's like they strip the inside of your colon. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, what, coming out of that, you should probably do some, we should probably give you some probiotics and prebiotics. And I remember at the time I was working with a clinic and, and a doctor and she looked at me and she's like, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. And I looked at her and I'm like, but, but you just made that person like evacuate every single thing that ever lived in their microbiome. I mean, obviously it will repopulate over time, but it seems to me we could probably give it a little boost. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and think about that when you're treating your patients with a detox, yeah. you know, you also want to think about that you probably are changing their microbiome and is that the best choice for them? Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of, I mean, we won't talk about this long, but one of the rabbit holes and I fall into rabbit holes quite often, as you know, <laughs> Always. Uh, <laughs> I think we all do. I've, I, you know, <laughs> I've redefined shiny object syndrome as I'm a, I'm a perpetual learner, lifelong learner. Yes. That's, that's my, <laughs> that's my new definition. Um, but I'm working with a, a guy who wrote this really interesting book called the immunity code. I don't know if you've ever heard of Joel. Oh, uh, I think you oh, would yeah. you would be so interested by it because his entire approach and it it's it's about fat loss, but it's about the immune system, mm, and yes. and it's all about the gut. And the first thing he has people do is to repopulate. Like acromancia is a gut bug that is severely depleted in most people. So he starts you off eating apple peels, followed by HMOs, followed by red polyphenols. And this whole kind of strategy that he outlines in this book that is incredibly detailed is that what we're doing is we're using food to nurture and feed and repopulate the microbiome and not just in the lower GI, but also in the stomach and taking care of the mucus layer and the, you know, and all the way along. And it's just like this really fascinating approach. And he's, I think he's a biochemist or something. So, you know, I'm doing his course right now and it kind of makes my brain hurt on some days, but it is so fascinating that it all starts with the gut, the microbiome and the immune system. Yes, absolutely. And the brain is very much affected by that. We have to realize that the blood-brain barrier is very susceptible to that. Yeah. Um, and then when you talk about um, when you talk about twenty-year-olds being the ones that commonly will will that you see, I see also with this these symptoms begin. The problem is they a lot of them, especially the women. Obviously, the women are on birth control pills. Mm-hmm. 
So then we run into the problem of, of not only nutrient depletion, as you're the expert in that area, um, um, we run into nutrient depletions because of the medications that we're taking, but it also really affects, it really puts women into a menopausal state. And so these young women can't understand why they have no libido, but it's because they're, they don't have any, they don't have any estrogen to feel sexy. They don't have their uh, progestins have now suppressed their testosterone, their, their, it's a mess. It's so, a mess. So, so are you finding with young women on the birth control pill that you're having to reintroduce certain types of, of hormones to help to rebalance them at the same time? So even, so if, if I really can't convince them to do an alternate form of birth control, which I really try to do, I'm a big fan of the IUD. I really try to push the IUD, um, especially in my younger women, because it's going to last 10 years. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to remember to put it, to take it every day. We're not going to be dependent on your memory to be sure that you don't get pregnant when you don't want to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it's, an IUD is more effective than, than having your tubes tied. I mean, that's interesting. But now are these copper IUDs or is yes. that, oh, so yes. now does copper itself, doesn't copper itself present some challenges in some ways, or are you able to mitigate that knowing it going in? Knowing it going in, I'm just giving them zinc. Okay. So you're just helping to rebalance that, that mm-hmm. ratio. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Or zinc foods. Yeah. Well, yeah. Pumpkin seeds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So that's interesting. So Okay. So in younger women or women who are on the birth control pill, it doesn't have to be younger women, but certainly because you were talking about yourself that you were put on birth control and spent what, how many years on antidepressants, not realizing the birth control that was, that was driving your depression. And about 12 years ago, I came off of the birth control and um, I just thought like, I just felt like I needed to come off of everything and see how what my self was. And I was fine. Wow. I didn't have any depression symptoms. I, I had a clear mind. I didn't feel this sort of up and down stuff, even though I was still having regular cycles. It was, it was amazing. The difference. Mm. So coming off of the birth control pills and coming off of the antidepressant medication, you know, I had so many side effects to those the antidepressant medications. And it was, it was around that same time when I started um, studying about additional kinds of practicing medicine, alternative and um, functional and whatever kind of practicing medicine and now in cellular medicine, trying to figure out what was happening in my life. And so I said, let me just get rid of anything that might be contributing to what's happening in me. And I'll be my first guinea pig. I think we all do that. Um, sure. We all, you know, I or my <laughs> husband are my, my first guinea pigs. Yeah. And so um, I just came off of everything. And uh, uh, when I, before I got married, I got an, I had an IUD placed and that's been super easy. I used it, like you said, the copper, but I think we have to realize that nutrient depletions occur with birth control pills and they have to be replaced. Um, uh, and that, and that we're not really using that but birth control pills really are not estrogen and progesterone. And I'm amazed at how often I'm still having that conversation, even with what I consider my very educated patients in my office. Cause I see very well-educated patients uh, and they still come to me and say, but I'm on birth control. Why do I need progesterone? Yeah. And so I say, because you're taking estrogens and you're taking progestins, but you're not balancing your estrogens with progesterone. And so I really feel like if, if you're going to stay on this oral form of birth control, um, we're going to run into some problems. Your, your testosterone is going to be bound up by that high SHBG. And so your testosterone is going to be in the tank. So that's why you have no libido, no, no um, horny libido. Your estrogen is going to be low because you have very little real estrogens in your birth control pills. So, or estradiol. And so you're, you're going to be somewhat estrogen depleted as well. It's, it's this, um, and yet you'll be estrogen dominant, even though you're estrogen depleted. So it's this terrible, (laughs) horrible, world yes, yeah. it's this horrible place where we're putting you in menopause at 20 so of course yeah. you feel terrible of course you have depression of course you have no libido and your partner can't understand why you're in this situation and where was my delightful joyful um patient that i had or, or partner that i had before yeah so that's uh that's another place where i commonly will see people struggle i think the third place is also hormonally related in the beginning of uh perimenopause and that's 35, 40 in that early time period where we'll see them have either a high estrogen um, 
uh, and a low progesterone where they get this irritability Mm -hmm. or we'll see the opposite where they have this, uh, especially my athletes will deplete themselves of quite a bit of their natural hormones because of their, their competition, their training, and they'll also have a depletion. So we see that sometimes in our, in my male athletes, as well as in female athletes, the, the, the depletion or changes in their hormones because of training. And that training then creates its own problem because you're talking about the, uh, oxidative stress situation of overtraining. And uh, those patients need to be very specifically managed as far as on their training days and their non-training days and, and their ramp up to a, uh, an event and then the day of event and then the post event, mm-hmm. um, the recovery mm-hmm. times and all of that needs to be addressed as related to their, to their um, depression symptoms. Yeah, it is amazing how prevalent depression is though. So going back to circling back, so we see hormonal imbalances. Um, you mentioned earlier also probably undiagnosed non-clinical thyroid, like an yes. underperforming thyroid that's not actually, you know, they haven't quite fallen off the cliff yet. So their, their doctor is saying to them, your thyroid is, and this is the line, your thyroid is fine. Everything is fine. Meanwhile, they're losing their hair. Like these crazy things are happening. Um, and, and again, people don't realize that depression is a, is a symptom of, of an underperforming thyroid. Exactly. And so we'll do a fairly extensive panel of thyroid labs that gives us a picture of what's happening all around. If um, Harkening back to the SHBG before, that's, a, that's part of my thyroid panel because it adjusts based on their thyroid as well. And so we look at quite a few markers of their thyroid uh, function before we say your thyroid is normal, this is not your thyroid. Um, but often it is, and even just a small tweak can make a difference. Sometimes it's just a matter of replacing their selenium iodine zinc. Hmm. Um, sometimes they, if you could just get, what's really fascinating is I had a patient that I had been treating for thyroid. Uh, he was diabetic as well. And we got him to lose about 35 pounds. And he, uh, um, we did that with some semaglutide. Yeah. And he was able to come completely come off of his thyroid hormone. And I think it's partly because we we were able to fix the thyroid function with the semaglutide. Now you do have to walk a little bit of a fine line because of the risk of um, thyroid cancer. There are just GLP-1 receptors on the thyroid that I think were the reason why he was doing so much better. Some of that is his weight loss. So he didn't need as much, but he needed no thyroid hormone at all. And that was um, that was very strange. He so was producing his own. Wow. That's amazing. So it's almost like the thyroid was being suppressed by the excess weight and all whatever, and the inflammation, because we know that excess fat produces cytokines and inflammation in the body and the whole nine yards. But the, you mentioned the thyroid, the increased risk of thyroid cancer with semaglutide. Is that global or is that, um, is that in certain populations? Like, it's just in thyroid, thyroid cancer history of thyroid cancer. So the study oh, was done with the study was done with rats, um, and the rats developed thyroid cancer. So there's not been a case of a human developing thyroid cancer as a result of using semaglutide or uh, any of the GLP ones, but that doesn't mean that it's not related. So it's just something you need to keep in mind if you're prescribing it or if you're taking it, especially Mm -hmm. if you have a personal history of thyroid cancer. Right. And what about, I'm going to ask you this because, so this is completely off topic guys, sorry, but uh, what about, do you see pancreatitis issues with any of the GLP-1 agonists? I had, I had a guy in one of my groups say that I can't remember if it was semaglutide or liraglutide, but it was one of the GLP-1 agonists. And he said he believes that it it caused him to develop pancreatitis. Have you seen that before? Or is there anything in the literature about that? Yes. So it's, it, there's a quite a bit in the literature. It's a very small chance of happening 
happening. Of course, it's more likely to happen in diabetics because diabetics just generally are more likely to have pancreatitis um, and alcoholics are more likely to have pancreatitis. So I would say in those two groups, just beware that you're more likely to create. Now, the nice thing about using semaglutide, I actually use semaglutide in my alcoholics on purpose because I do think it treats alcoholism. It, in, um, there's a couple of small studies um, I'm, I think they were done with exenatide, not with semaglutide, but semaglutide is so easy to use because it's weekly. It really does help to, to decrease uh, cravings for alcohol. Yeah. And I have a few patients that I've got on it who said, look, I'm just not going to be able to quit unless you do something to help me. Yeah. And so we put them on semaglutide and they have great, great results with that. It really keeps them. They say that they can now drink socially, have one, go home. They don't have Amazing. to have yeah, wow. really nice. And so for the pancreatitis, just going back to that, is that if we, if, if let's say the person, is it possible that it's the overconsumption of sugar in the presence of the semaglutide with someone who's diabetic or pre-diabetic, but somehow they, they go to the sugar foods, even though they can't eat a lot of them, that may set the stage for that pancreatitis? Yes. Okay. That's, I, that, I mean- yeah, <laughs> it does upregulate. It upregulates production of insulin from the pancreas, of course. And so if your pancreas is already in that very stressed state, I like to think of it like the Herxheimer reaction. Yeah. <laughs> so if your pancreas is already in that oxidative stress state and you add something that's going to push it a little bit harder, then mm -hmm. I think that's what we're running into. Interesting. So it's almost like uh, a co uh, um a way to help people when we put them on these GLP-1 agonists is to say, just, I mean, stay away from sugar for 10,000 reasons. And now we have 10,001 reasons right. for you to stay away from the sugar. I mean, use other sweeteners like monk fruit or whatever the case may be, but sugar is remains. Or trehalose. Or trehalose. Yes. Trehalose, the new darling. Um which I want to talk about, but I want to get back to Prozac is not your. Yes, yes. <laughs> we have to do another podcast. Oh, yeah, that's that. That will not be a problem. OK, so so we've talked about sex hormone, thyroid, um, a microbiome is a gimme with depression. Obviously, uh, traumatic brain injury is going to obviously also in many people can trigger depression as well. And then the other population of people you were saying that you really work with as well is people with SIRS, Lyme, mold, MCAS. And again, like this is a population of people, I'm going to guess because of the inflammation, the systemic inflammation, not to mention the fact that they just feel crappy all the time would be very prone to depression as well. Yes. Right. Exactly. And your point is, is really wise about being aware that chronic illness is really a cause of depression itself. Not yeah. only the, the inflammatory state and the oxidative stress state, but also the fact that you can't go and do the things that you want, just like all of us are experiencing with this pandemic, Yeah, not being able to do the things we want to do. We also have the problem that we are, um, th these patients have the problem that they're not able to get out and do the things they want to do. They can't socialize like they want to. They can't exercise like they want to. This has really derailed their lives in many ways, um, especially the MCAS with the with the POTS kind of symptoms. There, those are that's a really rough um, a rough thing to go through, and then just the fatigue is overwhelming. Yeah. So so fatigue can be um, misinterpreted or or um, um, can be interpreted as depression. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that it's because of the illness that they're suffering, that they're dealing with. And so always we look for, um, occult infections. That's a really, especially if we have something that's not responding, I always forget and always have to remind myself that I need to ask about dental things yes. because it's such a contributor. There's such a big, there's a lot of research about, um, is it porphyromonas? I believe is the oral um, bug that's the common uh, yeah. bad guy as far as, I think it's primarily in rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. but certainly anything that's going to increase, uh, increase blood brain barrier leakiness yeah. is going permeability. to risk, yeah. permeability is going to risk them having problems with depression because you're creating this inflammatory storm. You're causing re retraction of dendrites. Um, and that's, that kind of goes into a lot of the things that we can do to treat. Let's get into some of that. Hey folks, we interrupt this podcast to bring you our, and to thank our newest sponsor, which is Bioptimizers. And we're in real luck because this month, 
by Optimizers is launching their Black Friday deal right now, right now during the first week of the month of November. And not only are they going to be giving you a huge discount all month long, they are also going to be giving away over $200 worth in free gifts. This is their biggest sale of the entire year. So this is the perfect time to stock up on some of their best-selling magnesium breakthrough. This is the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief, better sleep, all in one bottle. The truth is that most magnesium supplements fail simply because they're synthetic and they're not full spectrum. And you see, when you get all seven critical forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body gets an upgrade from your brain to your sleep, pain, inflammation, even less stress. So it's not just about the huge discount during the entire month of November. As I mentioned earlier, Bioptimizers is also offering all sorts of awesome free gifts and products worth over $200 with select purchases, as long as you use my unique code, which I'm going to get to. This is literally the best time to get the lowest prices, to stock up, and to take advantage of all the free extras you're going to get. You can only get this exclusive deal through my link, special for you listeners. You will not find this on Amazon or even the Bioptimizers website. All you have to do is go to www.magnesiumbreakthrough.com forward slash Bionat and use code Bionat to get your discount and free gifts today. One last thing before I go, you should know that all Bioptimizer supplements are really the best in class, but if for some reason you feel differently, you can get a full refund up to a full year after your purchase, no questions asked. So once again, the link to go to right now for this exclusive deal is www.magnesiumbreakthrough.com forward slash Bionat, and make sure that you also use promo code Bionat, B-I-O-N-A-T. So do it while supplies last and don't miss the November 30th deadline. Ready, set, go. But first, let's get back to our episode. So again, like I think it's like everything else, taking care of that foundation. So the nutrition, the sleep, the exposure to sunlight, exercise, and it doesn't have to be crazy exercise, just movement, right? Nutritional deficiencies, micro deficiencies, like nutrients, whatever the case may be. But once you've kind of dealt with that, what's next in your toolkit? And I know you've got something. When you said it, I was like, I've never heard of that. Oh my oh. God. And it's a peptide. Oh, my God. That's so exciting. Yes. So. <laughs> um, it's called PE2228. That's probably um, it's an easy go to for me. Um, it's a little bit harder to find now, but it's the, it's out there and it's available in a nasal spray and it works by um, the it's a spotten analog. So it works by helping patients to um, helping their brain cells to, let me get my notes up here. Sorry. And what's a spotten? How do we spell spotten? S-P-A-D-E-N. All right. Spotten analog. All right. So it's word of the day, folks. Yes. So Spaden was the original one that was, that was created. And this works in a very similar way that, that estrogen deficiency is fixed. It works in a similar way that some of the antidepressants work, um, especially it works, um, in a similar way to a lot of the anesthetics. It works in a similar way to ketamine. Um, but it's, so arachidonic acid goes in and stimulates this TREK1, which increases BDNF, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Right. This uh, BDNF then uh, then increases the production of these um, dendrites. Yeah. So your your brain cells now become very branched. They can they make lots of attachments, lots of associations, and you are, are able to come out of that depression better than you could before because of BDNF primarily is we're upregulating BDNF with, with uh, PE 2228. It's just a small fragment of that um, Spaden, the original Spaden. That's, and it's just very targeted. And mm-hmm. so how is it administered? Is it an intranasal or something? It is intranasal. intranasal. Such a perfect route to the brain, right? Intranasal. Yeah. And um, okay, cool. So you, you will use that. And do you find that people need to stay on it a long time? Or is it the kind of thing that once, especially because it's having this BDNF effect, which, you know, other things do, right? We've got lion's mane, we've got all these hit extra. I mean, you know, there's different strategies to increase BDNF. This is obviously very, very 
targeted, but are you finding that people need to stay on this long-term or, I mean, I'm sure it depends Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's the normal answer. Um, But are you finding that this is like a course of this seems to help people The exciting thing about this for me is it works in about four days. It's pretty fast. So as opposed to, yeah. So as opposed to using something like a antidepressant, that's going to be, you have to tell them it's going to be three weeks before you get a result. There's no tachyphylaxis. So they're not going to wear out. Um, I probably see it working about 50% of patients. So it's, it's not the super hit in a, a bunch of people, but when it works, it works great. Hmm. So patients will get a good outcome um, if they, and and I don't use it long-term, I'm, I'm really trying to get people, my whole goal is to get you off of anything altogether. What can I get you off of even your supplements and nutrition? Why do you need that zinc supplement? Well, I have a copper IED. Okay. So until you can get rid of that until birth, um, birth control isn't an issue, then fine. We'll keep you on some zinc, but the, (laughs) the concession, fine then. (laughs) Yeah. If I can get you off of things, I, I always want to know that there's a reason why I'm starting something and there's a, there's a period of time I'm going to continue this. So yeah. I'm a big fan of six weeks. I think six weeks is sort of, you know, the concept of 40 days and fasting and, and, um, uh, Lent and those sort of things. I yeah. like 40 days as a, tr- as a trial period. So I will usually see people back in 60 days, uh, 40 days in six weeks. And I'll say, okay, let's talk about where you are. What do we need to tweak? What can we start? What can we stop? We started this because, how is, is it doing this? And then when I start things, I try to say, okay, these are the things I'm going to be looking for making a change. Where are you on a scale from zero to 10 with your uh, fatigue? Where are you on a scale from zero to 10 with your uh, tearfulness? Where are you, all of the symptoms that they described to me in the, in the original visit, I'll say, you told me you were at a six before today. Where do you think you are? And if they're not showing significant enough improvement, I'm going to make a change and do something different where we'll right. backtrack and start again. Right. So, so yeah. So what you're saying is they're going to, some people will see a result as quickly as four days, but you'll keep them on for about six weeks to give them the chance to kind of see if it's going to work for them at all, even over the long term. And then if by six weeks, nothing's happened, it's probably time to move on to the next thing. Yes. Okay, cool. That's awesome. And then I was asking you also about uh, CMAX and C-Lank and you were explaining that and I, and actually now that I think of it, that makes sense. It's, those are more appropriate for ang- as an anxio- anxiolytics. So for yes. anxiety versus depression. And I guess if we were to, to distinguish them, depression is kind of this, like the poor rat who got shocked till he gave up. Yes. You know, this kind of, I can't get my head up off the pillow thing. Whereas the anxiety is more of a churning kind of almost like an upregulation of the nervous system. And I think it's sort of, I think the exciting thing about using CMAX and C-Link, and I love that you suggested those, I like the idea of using those because they are, they do work on the inflammatory part. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're hitting that inflammation in addition to hitting the, um, the BDNF in addition to, you're, we're getting a good you're not just controlling their anxiety by hitting GABA. You're also yeah. getting some of that anti-inflammatory benefit. So I think there's some really good reasons to use C-Max and C-Link uh, in combination yeah. for these patients as well. And do you use and, them? Because I've, I've always thought that you kind of alternate between them. Like you might use C-Max for four weeks and then move over to C-Link for four weeks. Or do you find that you use them at the same time? I usually use them at the same time, but not on the same day. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, so, um, and then other cool things that we talked about were again, CBD also, but you were talking about how you're pretty cautious around teenage, like younger, your l- younger crew with, with CBD, which I can see why. Cause. Well, I think it's because we just don't know what it's doing yet to our epigenome. Yeah. Yeah. So it may not be an issue. It's kind of like all the things we're dealing, we're talking about right now with this, um, with this pandemic, we just don't know what's going to happen going forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a long-term thing. Well, and isn't there a thing in the genomics that, um, in some, I I did a a course on genomics a couple of years ago and, and the teacher at the time was talking about how in a certain population of people, they have, and I can't remember what the variants are to save my life right now, but they have certain genetic variants that predisposes them 
to responding very poorly to CBD. And we, and, and I think it was CBD actually, it was definitely part of the endocannabinoid system, but in this, and particularly young men, like teenage men, if they overdo smoking weed, let's say, or consuming cannabinoids in excess, it can actually trigger schizophrenia in them. And which may be part of the reason why we see schizophrenia showing up in around early twenties in that mm-hmm. young male population sometimes. Yes. So we just don't know what it's doing for sure. So I would, st- I would probably stick with the 25 plus yeah. crowd. Mm-hmm. There's too many good choices out there. I think we also have to realize that all of this is about how do we make the cells function best? And mm-hmm. so all of our anti-aging therapies are great for this. Yes. So Let's talk about those. Yes. I mean, t- just basic, simple things like using CJC epimoralin and, um, or, or tesamoralin epimoralin or any of those that are going to be growth hormone, um, uh, um, secretagogues. And then using things like liraglutide, even in our well patients, because of the, um, benefits as far as cellular energy use. Hmm. Interesting. So- so Lyra, my mom's on liraglutide. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so how is liraglutide different than semaglutide? It, I, I would, I'm sorry, I would use any of them. Just a daily any dose the, versus a weekly. Any of the, the GLP ones. A daily dose, you said? The liraglutide's daily. Oh, I see. Whereas the, the um, semaglutide is weekly. Yeah. Right. Well, they were originally designed to be used in patients with dementia to improve the energy um, use of the cells. And so you would imagine that they would also be effective if patients are having cellular stress that expresses itself as as depression. If we can reverse that cellular stress by giving them growth hormone secretagogues and something that would optimize their um, energy production in addition, like the um, GLP-1s, I think that's a good one-two punch. Yeah, that's um, amazing. So how long, how young would you use growth hormone secretagogues though? I probably don't go under 35 yeah. unless I see them and they are depleted. And, and would you do that? Would you see that through like lower, like IGF-1 levels that are just on the floor kind of thing? Right. And I'm going to have a much tighter, especially anybody that's, uh, I would never think about under 21, those people I'm going to refer to, uh, you know, I have a very sweet little kid who is a 21Q deletion patient, but I, because of the legality in the United States, it's not worth the, the risk of my license in the United States to do that. And so I sent him to an endocrinologist yeah. who did put him on, they unfortunately put him on actual growth hormone, which I think is probably fine for him. Um, but at some point when he gets old enough, I'll flip him over to the growth hormone secretagogues and we'll see how he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, okay. So we talked about microbiome, butyrate and spermidine. God, that spermidine comes up almost in every podcast. <laughs> right. Right. Because part so, of the problem is trying huge to get cognitive of- effects, right? Mm-hmm. It's just trying to get rid of the trash. It's it's helping the brain. It's one of the reasons why I haven't been excited about using um, hydroxychloroquine is because of it's busting up that or interfering with that trash system. So if we can get with the um, with the spermidine, if we can improve the way your body gets rid of trash, you know, when a cell is stressed, it's going to begin to accumulate proteins that don't that are poorly folded that are not functional. And so if that's happening, we have to have a way to remove that trash. I explain this to patients in this way. I say, if, if I have a trash system, if this room is a cell, the room that we are in as a patient and doctor is, is a, a cell, and I have this room full of, of uh, cardboard boxes, I can still take care of you, but it's much more difficult. Mm-hmm. And so doing my functions as a cell, as a doctor, taking care of you, hearing you, being able to listen to your heart, listen to your stomach, any of the things I need to do will be much more difficult if the room is full of boxes than if the room is, um, is empty and you, you and I can see each other and hear each other well. And so it's the same idea. If we can get rid of the trash, if we can get the cells to slow down, stop being in panic. It's just like what we tell ourselves about meditation and yoga and prayer time. If I can take the time to slow down, think deeply, 
um, do some some self uh, um, observation, do some brain rest, then I'm going to be able to get back and do the job that I need to do later in the day because I've taken that time. It's the same thing with the cell. If we can allow them to go through this autophagy process where they can slow down, take a deep breath, stop doing the work of being the cell, regroup, and then get and get rid of the trash, then we can the cells can actually do the jobs they need to, to do um, and function properly. So that's what we are looking for from something like spermidine. Um, butyrate, on the other hand, is an alternate fuel source itself. So it has sort of two ways that it functions. And one is an um, one is the uh, acting as a fuel source itself. The other way is acting as a um, uh, uh, HDAC inhibitor. So these are the way that the DNA wraps around these coils, chromatin coils, it wraps it tightly. So now those pieces that are wrapped in that chromatin uh, coil are unable to be um, translated or used. And right. so if we can get those that DNA unwound so that we can now access that very useful DNA. Now we have the ability to um, to use, to produce proteins that may be more useful for you, maybe more helpful moving forward. So, so butyrate has these two functions, um, both as a fuel source, you know, if we think about it in the colon, the, your, you eat fiber, your gut bug, eat it, creates butyrate. That's the favorite fuel source for the colon cells. Everybody's happy because they get what they need. Um, same thing happens in the brain. It is a, an alternate fuel source for the brain. And so, especially in our depression or dementia patients, or even our, our um, infectious toxic brain patients, if we can get them to have a, a way that they, a fuel source for the cells so that they just have the energy to get through and function, yeah. often that alone can make a difference in their, in their functioning ability, in their um, depression symptoms. Nice. So when you talk butyrate, are we talking tributyrate or is the tributyrate going to help with the brain and the colon or is it tributyrate for the colon and another type of butyrate for the brain? So if I'm treating the brain, I'm probably going to use something like a ketone ester. I was going to ask you about ketones, actually, because mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I've, I've gotten to know Frank Yosa at Ketone Aid pretty well. And he's a, um, he's a great, you know, what's amazing about Frank is he will stop at nothing to get ketones to someone who needs them. It's, he's the best. Like literally, I've, it's, he's, he's amazing that way. Well, he's amazing in a lot of ways. He's so committed to this mission of and it's not just this mission of selling ketones. It's actually this mission of getting research going around ketone esters so that people can understand like how they work, where they can help. And so I was actually going to ask you about ketone esters, because when we're talking about giving an alternative fuel source to the brain, helping to mitigate inflammation and all of these different things, you know, how much of depression in some cases might be just lack of fuel or right. brain, ce brain cells becoming insulin resistant and not getting yes. access to glucose. And yes. so if we can give them, if we can bypass that whole energy system and give them something else. So what's curious about, about um, uh, uh, ketones is you can actually keep your body, your cells can take those ketones and through the um, pentose phosphate pathway can create NADPH, which is that master antioxidant that yeah. can convert all of your other antioxidants that have been reduced, it can convert or could have been oxidized, can convert them all to their reduced form again. Wow. And so your body that's when it's under, when you're under stress can take that, that um, ketone ester and use it for that purpose. It can be rerouted. It's just brilliant how it works. And so um, there's so much, as you're suggesting, there's so much cellular science around ketones. There's way less clinical science. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm with them. I think it's very exciting to watch what's happening. The research around using um, IV and rectal butyrate are also very interesting. And so yeah. I certainly use both of those uh, modalities in my patients, depending on what they need. And it's really tailoring it to the individual patient, keeping in mind people's pockets are what they are, their wallets are what they are. Um, and you have to tailor that to meet their needs there as well. But um, I definitely would consider using the um, ketones as far as um, depression patients go, because they're going to need energy to fight off the inflammatory storm that's going on for their immune cells to fight off whatever infection might be present. If their inflammatory storm is because of 
of traumatic brain injury to get the recovery going. I think all of that requires an energy source. And I think ketones are a great choice. It's sort of like immediate release. What his product is sort of like an immediate release and an extended release product yeah. because it has that one, three butane diol. You get the immediate release of the, of the, um, three hydroxy, um, uh, period. And then you also get the one, three butane diol that then goes through the liver and becomes the um, second release. So it's this nice one, two punch of, um, ketones. Yeah, no, and and he definitely, I remember reading, I think there's actually research around TBIs where if you can get ketones into these people as soon as possible, it prevents the death of the brain cells in some yes. ways, or it mitigates it. I don't know if it prevents it completely, but it mitigates um, the death of the brain neurons just, again, by giving that really easy fuel source and, and down-regulating the inflammation and yes. the nine yards. Um, you know, the other compound that's really interesting for that is molecular hydrogen. Yes. As, as a selective antioxidant, um, I've seen, I, you know, myself in my practice, I've seen, um, I had a client who had Parkinson's disease and she would, she would say to me that she would wake up in the morning craving the hydrogen. Mm. And it's almost like it just somehow it gave her that little extra boost in energy and I think part of it for her, and I think a big piece of the hydrogen is this whole selective antioxidant piece to it, where it's not an antioxidant that's going to go after everything. And yet somehow, because of the way that it works as a signaling molecule, it seems to go after the bad actors select almost selectively. I mean, again, we don't really know exactly how this happens, but it's, uh, it's, it, these are all exciting areas of research for sure. Yes, absolutely. And the cool thing I think about the ketone esters with depression is similar to what you're saying about PE2228 is you're going to know pretty quickly if it's going to be helpful to you or not. Right. Like it's either going to lift the veil for you, even if it's temporary or you're, you got nothing kind of thing. Right. I think it's, I think I could see it being, um, I could see a good research study being using it in trying to get people off of their antidepressants to help with that restarting the whole system of making your own serotonin. Mm. Um, I could see it being valuable in, um, in treating initially treating depression symptoms uh, as, as, or as an adjunct to any other therapy that your provider might choose. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I think that, and, and I think what's really important for people to take away from this is, you know, it's not that antidepressants are necessarily all bad, Yes, I think what this discussion really is about is what else should people be looking at? What else can you be doing at the same time? What are the other alternatives um, to be looked at so that they don't become this kind of crutch that you kind of get stuck on? Right. Definitely that ends up creating its own problems. Well, yes. And or, or not fixing the actual problem that's there. Yeah. Even worse. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. No, guys, you're getting a light show. I just can't get my lights right. Today. I know I look all red today. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to create some kind of like a studio thing or something. Um, okay. So I'm just looking at my list here. What stones have we left unturned? We've talked about, oh, oxytocin. Let's talk oh, about yeah. that because I've talked about oxytocin on the podcast um, with Elizabeth, with Betsy Yerth on as an anabolic possibly, but oxytocin also around people who are suffering with depression can maybe helpful as well. And the cool thing about oxytocin is it can be used as an intranasal spray as well, right? Yes. I think in those patients, it works really well if you give it, if you can get them to do it injectable, oh. but um, there are some really interesting studies around it repairing um, uh, um, hypothalamic uh, and hippocampal um, function so that you're actually getting back what you, what you need, getting that restoration. So I would say, especially in your patients that you see are your uh, learned helplessness patients that we talked about before, those I think would be a really great place for this because you can see that actual repair and restoration where they're able, able to produce the ACTH and FSH and all the things that they need to be producing to, uh, and gonadotropin releasing hormone to be able to then go and do the things 
what, you know, why does a 25 year old have a low hormone level? That doesn't make sense to me. So we should be able to, especially for seeing, and what I see a lot, unfortunately, is um, patients who have had some sort of significant childhood trauma. And I don't mean a physical trauma per se, but an emotional trauma where they have carried that through until their young adulthood. And now we're trying trying to figure out how to get them off of their multiple antidepressants, but also to treat their, their um, metabolic dysfunctions and their, um, their neurotransmitter dysfunctions because of their uh, original injury, the original insult. And so obviously we're working on all the things we talked about sleep and microbiome and all of that, but then you can add that oxytocin as a specific repair to restore the function of their brain. That's so interesting. I never thought of oxytocin as actually repairing. I always thought of it as, oh, it helps people to feel happier. I mean, you know, when it does. You, definitely when I use it um, sub Q post-workout, I, I don't notice so much that I feel happier only because I also feel happy anyway. But, post-workout, so, right. I mean, I feel good. Uh, but I find that yeah, I definitely get that whole head rush uh, thing going on and which is very short lived, but I, I kind of get a bit of a head rush and it never ceases to amaze me how, and I think I'm using, I don't know, 70, 80 micrograms, maybe, maybe. And how that like a, a drop of something shot in, like put into belly fat within seconds. It's amazing. Like that is just like my, it blows my mind. <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> how quickly and how powerful these compounds are in our system. I love oxytocin. I use it in a lot of patients. There's some interesting research around weight loss. So I don't, we're going off topic here, but, but there's some really interesting research around weight loss and patients will use it uh, four times a day before meals and bed. And I think this was an intranasal, it was a rat study. So it had to be interperitoneal. It had to be an injectable, but they were using it four times a day and they showed weight improvement in these in these pages. maybe it was a maybe it was a human study. I'm sorry, I have to pull it up. I forget. Okay, wait. So we're um, talking oxytocin for weight loss. Yes, but it's a four times a day treatment, and it's a um, twelve milligrams, twelve international units. Twelve IU's milligrams. Yeah, let me see if I can find. I'll, okay, I'll could, send you the study. So you no can chance on you the could. Show notes. You could never inject twelve milligrams because I can tell you that seventy units blows my head off. <laughs> see if I can, I'll send you the, um, yeah, here it is. Eating behavior and metabolism. Okay. Actually, if you would send it to me, then I'll include the link in the show notes. Perfect. I'll do it. So that people can go digging into it themselves. I think that's really interesting. Um, I can think of worse ways to, I mean, it's just like four injections a day would be a pain. So yeah. Have you ever had, um, uterine cramping from using it? No, you know what I have had is the need to be close to a bathroom and fast. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I've had a couple of clients who actually had, were very constipated and I've had them use oxytocin and it works like a charm. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It seems to have a, a definite effect on the smooth muscle. Yeah. I have not noticed, I haven't had any patients report to me, um, the, the, um, uterine cramping. That's what's, that's what's talked about all the time in research and literature, but I I haven't had any patients report that, you know, because it's used as used for that for pitocin is used for that. So, yeah. But what's the, what's the dosage that they use when they're much higher? Yeah. Like it's gotta be crazy high. Right. So Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I don't, um, I've never, I've never also my uterus is, you know, She's been resting for the last number of years. <laughs> <laughs> On vacation, retired. She's retired. So I don't know how receptive she would be to anything at this point anyway. Um, okay, so oxytocin, I think we've covered all the things. Is there anything we've left off that you wanted to talk about? I mean, clearly there's loads of things we could talk about. <laughs> it's always so much fun to talk to you, Natalie. And likewise. So Dr. Suzanne, why don't you tell people where they can find you? Because yep. you run this amazing practice and I'm like, I kind of wish I lived close to you just so I could come to you. Tell people how to, how they can find you. And also if you practice telemedicine and all the things. Yes. So we are in Atlanta, Georgia. I, my practice is called Vine as in Grapevine Medical Associates. I'm on 
uh, Instagram and as Dr. S. Turner. I'm on YouTube as uh, Dr. S. Cellular Medicine. Um, that's the biggest ways, but you can reach us through our website, which is vinemedical.com. And uh, I have several really amazing providers that I get to work alongside who really challenge me every day and keep me on my toes. And it's a, it's a real blessing to work with them. So I'm, I'm glad to be there, but it's a, it's a great practice. I love being in their company. Amazing. And we just also to let people know that in terms of the types of, of patients that you you deal with mostly in the in the practice. I mean, I'm sure you have a whole range, but uh, because not a lot of doctors will take in people with SIRS, Lyme, mold. Uh, so these are much more, these are the complex cases. And so you have room in your practice for those guys. And then on the other hand, you're also an orthopedics um, kind of specialist. And so you deal with the athletes and the optimization crowd as well. Yes. Right. Yes, absolutely. And it's a nice, a nice balance to have the two because, um, because it can be a lot to deal with, to help well taking care of SERS patients. They yeah. are, they are sweet and very ill. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's uh it's a big job for sure. And yet I'm sure that every time you get one of them to turn the corner, it's like, you have to have a party of some kind or something. Yes. It's, a, it's so, so exciting to get one VCS screen. That's normal. You're like, yes, this is the best. Exactly. <laughs> it's We're right on the right road. <laughs> okay. Well, um, this has been amazing as always, Suzanne. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to come on the show today and for sharing your wisdom. And we've already got our next episode in the works actually with um, maybe a couple of other doctors. So uh, I think you'll be back really soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the biohacking superhuman performance podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.